which I think that's something that Marx couldn't have seen coming, not just the technology aspects of it, but I don't think Marx really predicted fascism. And I see fascism as sort of an antibody for mm. capitalism, like capitalism when it started to really be threatened by communism and specifically the, after the Great War, after 1910s and into the 1920s, fascism cropped up and it was a really effective way of just smashing communist uprisings. Um, yeah, and just maintaining the the capitalist order. And yeah. uh, I mean, in that way, being sort of a, a, a counter-revolution to a future revolution. You know, exactly. Exactly. Have right, a revolution right, right. now, a fascist revolution now, to keep capitalism and to prevent a socialist revolution in the near future. Exactly. And I think with the, that's one of the failings I think of Marx. To be honest, is that in his historical materialist analysis, I don't think he accounted for that or saw it coming. And I mean, you know, you can't predict the future, but I don't think that he. I think yeah. he thought that it was going to be like, you know, sometime in the twentieth century, we would like abolish capitalism and start building towards real co communism. And I guess, to, you know, we had the Soviet Union and shit, but I think he underestimated, like, the development of neoliberalism and fascism to as a counter to communist and as a way to get yeah. workers to work against their own interests, which is what neoliberalism is, is you know, that's what its great success has been. So yeah, I think, uh, I, I, think, I think you're right about that. I think Marx had... Marx was a bit too optimistic about how easily it would how easy it would be to get workers to be class conscious. Is yeah. that he, I, I guess he thought eventually that if you expose how capitalism works and you tell them, you know, you are an oppressed worker and you should fight to liberate yourself, um, that 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 would just kind of lead to class consciousness. Yeah. But it didn't. And and I don't blame him for that though, because like the time he was living, you know, with that like that grim Victorian industrialization that they had at that time yeah. where like which we still have those kinds of societies, but they're not in white society. You know what I mean? They're mm -hmm. they're beyond the vision. Like most people don't it's like out of sight, out of mind. So yeah. uh somebody who's working at a call center in you know, the southeast USA where I'm from, obviously they have a very shitty job and a very shitty life, but it's not like the bleak factory existence of uh, yeah. a 19th century factory worker or a factory worker today in like, you know, China or Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think in that time it was much more likely for Marx. Marx probably did think, you know, like, oh, this thing's really fucking suck. Obviously people want to change it. We're getting back towards that now, though. I mean, hell, 2020, <laughs> we're starting to go back towards that grim Victorian uh, industrialization Everywhere, yeah. I guess, uh, in a lot of ways, maybe different ways, but it does suck right now for everybody a lot. It does, yeah. So maybe um, we'll, maybe maybe Marx just maybe the whole thing maybe the 20th century was like a a hiccup, and maybe we'll get back on track. I don't know. Maybe 2020 is the turning point. Could be. Yeah, maybe. I mean, um, something that I've thought about a lot, and kind of one of the reasons that I wanted to have this talk with you is in my ideal Marxist society right like you said if, if i could just build a society um well i guess i mean obviously my ideal society would just be a communist society right but as a marxist i focus on the transitional state first right like i, right. I think about how do we build a good socialist system that is democratic that is sustainable that won't just crumble um uh and then 
I mean, communism is, is kind of this very far-off system that we don't really know the details of how exactly it will work. Um, we know that it is a classless, moneyless, stateless society. We know that that's where historical materialism will bring us eventually. And that's the goal. That's what we're working toward. But it's kind of useless, at least in my thinking, to try to design it, right? To to build uh, or to build it instead of letting it develop organically among the people themselves and how they interact with each other and with society at large. Because I, I feel that with new technology and that kind of things, communism will just kind of prop up in different places in socialism, right? And, and, and the state will kind of have to step away from certain areas and let communism grow, kind of like a... Mm -hmm. Like a cancer. <laughs> That's a pretty good <laughs> analogy. A, a really awesome cancer. Yeah. The best cancer. <laughs> but but in my in my like ideal transitionary state, um, I wouldn't want to have like the Asher scapegoat Marxist party to be a, mm -hmm. a one party state and just control everything. I would want uh, to have different. Uh, ideals and different ideologies and philosophies to interact with each other and act in opposition to um, to the Marxist government. And in that opposition, I want anarchists. And I want anarchists to be there as a constant reminder that, hey, you're still a state. Like, you're, you're yeah. still a state. You're still a hierarchy. You need to work on this. And to kind of never let Marxists forget that there is an end goal that we have to be thinking about. It's not just about building a, a strong state. It's kind of the opposite. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, yeah. And so uh, how do you. How do you how do you how do you like put the. How do you reconcile the. um eradication of anarchists that did occur because anarchists in certain, including in, so like there's the story in Vietnam from what I understand is that while Ho Chi Minh was out traveling, I can't, I wish Luna was here cause she knows all the names much better than I do. Um, yeah. There was this dude who was a real big, super tanky, <laughs> like, like even, that's like the way Luna describes him. Like he, mm -hmm. and he, um, he murdered all of the anarchists in Saigon. He, there were like 40 or 50 anarchists in Saigon. And obviously there were purges of anarchists in many, you know, socialist countries. Like, yeah. um, and the reason being is because anarchists were doing exactly what you said. They were like criticizing the hierarchy of, yeah. of these, uh, nascent states. Um, do you like, like, how do you, how do you have people around who are constantly criticizing the state um, and still build a centrally organized vanguard party-based state. Yeah, see, like, I kind of, um, I'm not really a vanguardist in that way. Okay. Right. Um, I believe in, in power structures. I believe it, that hierarchy is necessary, but I believe that there needs to be criticism of it and that, mm -hmm. um, power like power needs to be criticized. Power yeah. can't run amok. Power can't just be. Power has to be criticized. People have to. So be, how, how yeah. would you organize if you're not a vanguardist? Do you, how would you organize the state like, at the opening stage and I guess in the midterm stage? Like what would you? What would that look like? 
If it's not a Vanguard um, party, what is it? What is it? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting, and obviously, it depends on how actually we we achieve the revolution. Do we have like a you know, if if we're talking about something like Cuba, obviously, they have the U.S. right next door. They're being invaded, um, and they have to you know use guerrilla warfare to overthrow Batista. And Cuba didn't have democracy, even though they have democracy now. They didn't have democracy for a while. Uh, while they were sort of setting up the state and getting everything ready. And but then they introduced the constitution and they let the people, they essentially let the people write the constitution, right? So they made a draft of a constitution and they put it out to all the different communities, like thousands and thousands of communities uh, all around the island. And people criticized it. Um, they, they criticized it. They came up with their own ideas. They said, don't do this, do this. And they sent it back to the government and the government took all the ideas and they put it all, they wrote a new constitution, a new draft for the constitution. They sent it out. The people criticized it. It was sent back and, and they kind of did this back and forth where they were setting up this power structure uh, that everyone is supposed to agree on. And the way that they achieved the most efficient, like the, the best way they found to build a power structure, to build a state, was to let the people criticize it first. Um, mm -hmm. Because... To me, criticism is a very important part of democracy. Letting yeah. people criticize and letting people say, this sucks, do it again, do it this way, do it better. Um, because power should never be comfortable. No one in power should ever be comfortable. Politicians should never be comfortable in power. I believe that quite firmly. Especially if you have a strong head of state, head of government. If you have like a presidential system, which I'm not necessarily in favor of. But if you do have that, that person should never be comfortable a day in their life. Um... Because with power comes great responsibility, like Superman yeah. said. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that is something that you have to be constantly reminded of. So right. in, a, you know, in a vanguard system, you have democratic centralism where you have free debate, but then you come to a conclusion and then it's like, well, that's what goes. That's what we decided on. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't really believe in that. I don't really believe in democratic centralism. Because I believe that the people and, and opposition parties and, and anarchists and, and all these kinds of things should always have the freedom to criticize and say, that's not how we should be doing things. And I, I believe in the freedom to protest and hold demonstrations and strikes and all these things, even under, or perhaps especially under, a socialist transitionary government. And um, I mean, it sounds like, we, like, like we, you know, I, I wouldn't mind living in that society. You know, I mean, I mm -hmm. don't feel like it's really a far cry from what I say when I say anarchism. Yeah, I think, I, that, I think so. Um, I think that there's a, a – and which is like, you know, it's like in Vietnam, for instance, today, uh, I live here. I have an anarchist YouTube channel. I criticize the government. Luna criticizes mm -hmm. the government every day uh, on live streams or in videos or that sort of thing. I mean, um, we also try to dispel a lot of myths and tell – you know, we try to give the truth as we see it. And we know that the government is aware of us because we've both been on television. Mm -hmm. I've been on VTV – uh, like four or five times now. Um, they've interviewed me about my Twitter account. They've interviewed me about my YouTube channel. They know that I exist. You know, so I know the government knows I'm here and I know that they must know that I criticize the government. Mm -hmm. um, and I have the right to speak and I don't feel like it's ever been infringed. And, I, you know, I, I have some pretty heavy criticism of the government. Um, so, you know, I that's one of, the th one of the reasons I say like Vietnam is the most anarchistic place I've ever lived, believe it or not. Uh, mm -hmm. In my opinion, but I, I truly believe that I, I do feel like the, the culture of Vietnam is very anarchistic 
And although the government is super hierarchical and I really actually hate the way it's structured because it's like a hierarchy, like the, the way that elections work is like you vote for your local representative and then they mm -hmm. vote for the next re regional and then they vote yeah. for the national, you know, so it's like you're not voting directly for the these representatives at the very top. I actually really hate that organization. Yeah. yeah no, but despite I, I, that, yeah. the, 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 the actual day-to-day -day life here is very free. Um, yeah. You know, the lockdowns notwithstanding, uh, which I, I've mm -hmm. already told you, I thought those were justified and I would want those in my anarchist society as well. I would want those kinds of lockdowns, you know, but like I can go down to the beer. I, I can go to the beach and have a beer. I can, mm. you know, I, I, I can do basically whatever I want as long as I'm not bothering anybody. I've never had a cop interact with me except for like at the airport coming in and out through customs. I've never had a police officer bother me about anything. Um, they just don't harass people as long as you're not hurting other people. I mean, that's that's the way my lived experience has been here for 10 years. I know I'm a white person, but Luna has been living here for 30 years. She's Vietnamese. She's had mm -hmm. the same exact experience as I have. Um, and, you know, the other thing I like to say is that based on my experiences, places I've lived and the places I've learned about, Vietnam has one of the best governments in the world, but that's not really praise for Vietnam as much as it is an insult to the rest of the world's governments. <laughs> but, yeah, um, you know, I, I, I do I, I do think that with a few tweaks, Vietnam could become like my ideal anarchist paradise, and it wouldn't even take much. Because, yeah. like, for one thing, they have anarchism on a local level already. Because the way that I've been to ward meetings, a ward is like kind of a town count like a, a city yeah, yeah. is broken up into districts and the district is broken up into wards so the ward is basically like a little community a little yeah. section of a community and i've been to ward meetings and they are run very anarchistically like anybody can speak anytime they want to it's fully democratic they elect the ward um the wardens who are kind of like the coordinators for the ward but those people don't have like direct power they have to do everything democratically and they yeah. solve problems communally in this like really direct way yeah and if they just kind of expanded that um I mean, they already don't have traffic laws for the most part. They already don't have the police doing very much, you know, to, to, to you know, fuck with people, for lack of a better term. So it's like it's very close, even though mm -hmm. it's a Marxist-Leninist state. But then they also have – then there are other situations where I'm like, even as an anarchist, I'm like, well, maybe this form of hierarchy is justified because, like, I see every single day in the news – that absolutely the capitalist press from Europe and from North America are coming up with all kinds of lies, bullshit propaganda. They're paying anti-communists to try to destabilize the government here. I see that happening. And I know that they can't just like ignore that stuff and let it happen, you know? So it's like, what do you do if you live in a society that like powerful interests like the United States of America and China are trying mm. to do everything they can to destabilize you, imperialize you, and, you know, ultimately probably take over your country. I mean, you know, you have to have security in that context. Yeah. I'm not saying that there's simple solutions, you know, and there are a lot of solutions that I might not like the way they look. Like, for instance, the fact that it's illegal here to, um, to be paid by America. Like, people get arrested here sometimes because America will pay them to uh, write um, – you know, inflammatory things about the government, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then the, gov the, the government will, like, I can write inflammatory things about the government all I want, but if they find out that, like, I'm taking money from the USA for doing it, um, or if they find out that I'm lying and slandering somebody or whatever, you know, that's illegal. I don't like the ways that they punish people sometimes, right? 
Like, I don't think yeah. anyone should go to jail for a Facebook post, for yeah. instance, which happens in Vietnam, right? Now, there's a lot more behind that story of, that goes into that, you know. But even if, you know, even if they're taking money from a foreign government, even if they're lying and slandering people or whatever, I'm a prison abolitionist. Yeah. I don't think anybody yeah, – I don't want anybody to go to prison, right? So, yeah. like, that's something I think they could change. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, the, the experience of living in this country has really been – Amazing for me in terms of like grounding me, giving me like a, a material perspective that I wouldn't otherwise have had. Um, it's given me a lot of uh, fuel to critique the state, but it's also given mm -hmm. me a lot of um, pause, I guess, in perspective when I understand, you know, when I try to understand why they do some of the things they do. So yeah. uh, it's, it's very complicated. And I don't think that there are simple solutions. And I think that's why having conversations like these is so important. You know, we have to yeah. find ways to communicate with each other and listen to the criticisms we have of each other's ideas and, and do it in a way where we're not immediately bracing and defensive and, and you know, trying to, um, you know, basically debate, debate me bro kind of culture. I feel <laughs> yeah. like this conversation you and I are having is like way more productive and useful for the left than like a thousand debate, debate me bro streams. Yeah. Where we're like screaming at each other and trying to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. You know what I mean? Like that's not the way forward. And it's not dialectical from a Marxist perspective. And it's not mm -hmm. uh, it's not respectful of like basic human dignity. And it forms hierarchies, you know, uh, from an anarchist yeah. perspective. So, um, yeah, I don't I know. Mean, sorry, I, I went off on this huge uh, on this huge rant. <laughs> um, give me no, one second. I'm going to go turn on a fan. I'll be back in about okay, like okay. one minute. Just give me a sec. All right. Hold on. I'm trying to. Okay. Hello, chat. How are you doing? Uh, uh, anarchist can have people grant a temporary authority for a specific purpose with right of recall. Things like pirate captains, quartermasters. Yeah. Um, I mean, I agree with that. I agree with recalling politicians. Um Cuba has that, for instance, you can recall um, local, regional, or national representatives. Anyone that, that the constituency has voted for, you can just say, you're not fulfilling um, what, what you were supposed to do. You're not doing what we elected you to do. So, fuck off. You know, you don't represent the interests of the people anymore. You don't rep rep in, uh, represent the interests of the constituency. So... There's no reason you should be in power anymore. Uh, and, you know, if that's an anarchist ideal, then, you know, call me Nestor Machno, I guess. But I agree with that. <laughs> I, yeah, and I think that's something that I, I, I kind of caught most of that. I think that's something that me and Luna uh, really are just like, I I feel like we're, we're maybe kind of far away from it. You know what I mean? We're not close to it or anything. But I do think there's a reconciliation to be made. You know what I mean? I, mm -hmm. I do think so. I think that there's a reconciliation to be made between my anarchism, Luna's Marxist-Leninism, your Marxism. And I think part of that it, it has to do with recognizing that there's not one magic formula for every you, – you, you know, thinking about things in terms of material conditions. Just right away, if we could just recognize that, like, what worked for Vietnam isn't going to work in the USA. And that's something that Lenin said. You know, Lenin mm -hmm. said that – um, if he wasn't operating in a czarist, authoritarian, you know, horrifyingly brutal system, he wouldn't have made his uh, revolution as centrally organized as 
it was. He said that you know pretty pretty clearly that he was designing the system for a system where if if the czar finds out you're a communist, you will be put to death, you know, or in prison. Yeah. So you have to design a, a, a very rigidly centralized and secretive uh, organization. But you know, that's not exactly the same case in the USA. Just like in Vietnam, you know, like they were being colonized by the French, which was terrible. They were being imperialized by the USA, but they were not in the center of the empire. They weren't in the in the seat of the empire like we are in the USA. And I think that's why COINTELPRO works so much better in the USA than it would have in the in Vietnam. Like, you know, like like I, I feel like if Ho Chi Minh were an American, he would have gotten murdered just like Fred Hampton, or he would have been mm-hmm. in prison just like you know most of the Black Panther you know leaders. And that's something where when we talk, you know, because there's always the when we talk about our tendencies, there's like the style of revolution, and then there's what we want our post-revolutionary society to look like. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like a centralized revolution in the USA, they, the, 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 mm. the American state is so good at gutting those. I just mm. don't see how it could work. If a vanguard party or if a centralized revolution popped up in the USA and they were successful, I would join it. You know, I would, I would, uh, I would be constantly criticizing, like you said, in the back of the room, telling, you know, shouting about hierarchies. But I would, I would join it if I thought they were the best path forward and they were getting momentum and that sort of thing. Um, but I just don't see it taking root because already we're seeing with like, you know, the BLM movement and, I'm, you know, there's COINTELPRO happening now. There are, you know, agent provocateurs. There are people who are posing as activists doing shit to destabilize and sow discord. And, you know, the more centralized it is, the more effective those means that the state has to undermine and destroy us. You know, it, I just don't see a Vietnam-style Communist Party taking root in the USA. I feel like it would yeah. get eradicated. So I don't know, you know, I mean, like, how do you, how do you, uh, I mean, I, I, I agree that, that different different material conditions call for different solutions, and mm-hmm. one kind of revolution is not going to fit everywhere on the planet. Like, yeah, if we could all agree on just that, if we could all yeah. agree on just that, to me, that's like a massive step forward for tactical, and then hopefully, it maybe one day, leftist unity. You know, yeah. um, if if we could just understand that, like, there's no one size fits all solution. Yeah, um, that's a big step forward, I think. I mean, that's one of my main criticisms of. Uh, Marxism, Leninism, and how it acted in Eastern Europe, and how it imposed the vanguard, the Leninist uh, system on countries in Eastern Europe, um, right. and how um, um, uh, what's it called, the Shining Path in in Peru, the um, what's that guy called, oh. Gonzalo? Uh, so. How he, yeah, he believes that like protracted people's war in the style of china is like how the entire world is going to go communist yeah right this is like that's not going to work everywhere. Doesn't that's not even that's yeah. not going to be the best way to do it everywhere in the world um yeah. but you, you were talking about um how how does a marxist society kind of deal with uh dissidents and anarchists and you know kind of with the we talked about how the most fundamental right is the right to life itself and how, you know, we're both prison abolitionists, maybe in slightly different ways, but generally speaking, we're both against prisons. Me, I'm against prisons for a very material reasons uh, in that uh, I don't believe that emotions should guide punishment, that a lot of punishments, especially things you see in the U.S. and how people are punished and how long they're punished for and what they're punished for, a lot of it has to do with justice for the family and, you know, 
not necessarily ensuring the safety of the community or yeah. reforming the individual, but it's about uh, what's this, this feeling, this like feeling of that justice has been done for everyone else. Yeah. Right? I would even go so far as to say there's a lot of like pathological, sadistic, yeah. like psychosexuality with like the American obsession with punishment. And, yeah. uh, you know, because there's like this whole, I don't, I hope that it's not like that in Sweden, but, you know, in the USA, like if somebody gets arrested for some kind of heinous crime, like immediately people start fantasizing about them getting like sexually assaulted in prison and that sort of thing. Yeah. There's like something very pathological in the US uh, mindset when it comes to thinking about prisons and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But anyway, that's just kind of an aside. But, no, yeah. but yeah, but that that's like one of the main problems that I have with with prisons and and punishment in general and, and crime and justice is is the emotional side of everything. Where yeah. if I'm very right, materialistic, right, right. if if someone has committed a crime, the first question you ask is, are they likely to do, to do this again? Are they a danger to the community? And if they killed someone, yeah. probably yes. And how do we make this person not uh, a, a threat to the community anymore? First, we isolate him from the community, right? Um, and we use a prison, but we don't say that that's the be-all and end of it. We don't say that, yeah. okay, you, we put you away for this many years, and then we'd let you out, or we don't let you out ever, right? So I believe in, in rehabilitation, and Sweden has, you know, some people say Sweden and Norway have, like, the best prisons in the world. Essentially, you're just put in an apartment, Right. Like it's not a prison. It's just a room or like it's a house. And a lot of yeah. the time you you share like you there's a prison. I can't remember the name of it, but it's it's a prison, but it's really just a house. And you have a room and you have a shared kitchen and you have a shared living room and you live with other people. And the guards are rarely there. You're just kind of yeah. in this house with other people and you're allowed out and all these kinds of things. Um it's like a minimum security prison, but essentially you live there and you, you work with other people and you coordinate and, and essentially you just learn to live in a community and, and live with other people and respect other people and that kind of thing. And yeah. just the goal is to rehabilitate you and to get you to be uh, someone who's not a danger to the community anymore. And that's essentially yeah, what I believe that's in. exactly what I want to see. I mean, yeah, and, and I, I think, you know, like there's a lot of assumptions we make too that like, like for instance, um, most people who kill actually, like I read this in a book. I'm reading a book about prison evolution right now that was written by a Quaker in the 70s. I can't remember her name right now. I'll mm. try to find it while you're talking. Uh, but anyway, like she talked about how most people who kill never kill again, you know, um, yeah. although they found that like if they serve long prison sentences and then they get released, it actually increases their likelihood of recidivism. Like prison makes yeah. people more likely to be violent when they get out of prison uh, yeah. versus I mean, if they that, have like a shorter the revolving door sentence. in the yeah. U.S. is... Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't call yeah. the I wouldn't call that that model if it's exactly like you described. If it's not punitive and it's rehabilitative, I wouldn't even call that a prison. I think mm -hmm. that's a, some other kind of institution. It's like a rehabilitative uh, that's system. Forced and I, you know, rehabilitation center. <laughs> yeah, but a prison to me is like punishment. Yeah, a prison is an institution that's designed to punish people first and foremost, to yeah. you know essentially warehouse and torture them en masse. Uh, yeah. and that, that's why I'm, I call myself a prison abolitionist, but that doesn't mean that I don't think that if somebody is, for instance, a serial killer or a sexual predator or something like that, like those people definitely yeah. need to be kept apart from society. That doesn't mean we have to torture them. That doesn't mean we have to like, you know, treat them like animals and give them, you know, things that are known to cause 
more psychic trauma and that are known to make them more likely to come out and victimize more people if they ever are released again. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's, it's irrational. And like you said, it's not materialistic. The mm-hmm. biggest priority should be a protecting people, which prisons don't do. They don't protect people. And it should be, um, trying to as hard as we can to, uh, rehabilitate people and bring them back into society and make them productive, you know, and the prison doesn't serve that function either. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's why I consider myself a prison abolitionist, but people think that I mean, I, you know, let everybody just run free and do whatever the <laughs> hell they want. Um, mm. That's not exactly what that means, you know, for most prison abolitionists. Uh, mm. So, and, yeah, uh, see, we, I, again, we agree. Some, uh, again, we agree. <laughs> yeah. I've gotten some slack from, I think a lot of it is from, from Marxist Leninists, but I'm like very anti death. <laughs> oh, me too. Like, Hell yeah. yeah, I completely agree. Death like, it's like I said, death is the ultimate form of coercion. Yeah. You cannot have a stronger hierarchy over somebody than to take their life. That's yeah. irreversible. Um, and and obviously there are things like euthanasia and, and voluntary death and that kind of thing. That's one thing. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. But when it, but when it comes to punishment, when it comes to the death penalty, I I'm always against it. And and yeah. uh also often say, Well, what about in during a revolution? You know, yes. You have you can have a violent revolution. You can have soldiers, but yeah, I don't agree in executing civilians or agitators or anything like that. Um, if it, if yeah, I mean, to... like there are there's always going to be situ- like okay, like because uh, Luna brings up all these like uh, hypotheticals all the time, where it's like, yeah. well, what if you have somebody and if they let them go, they're going to tell, and then they'll the, the state will kill all. You know, it's like there might be situations that are extremely dire. Where, like, you have to make that kind of math where it's like, okay, well, this person has to die so that we don't completely get destroyed. You know what I mean? But you want to try to avoid that as much as possible, not glorify it, not be adventurists, and not uh, see... Certainly, I don't think that the death penalty committed by, like, a government is ever justified because, you know, the the government has the means to solve those problems in so many other ways. You know, the yeah. death sentence just doesn't need to be ap- applied. It's not the same as, like, a revolutionary situation in any way. So mm. I completely agree with you there. I mean, if someone is a danger, if someone is going to go, you know, tell the opposing army where you are or whatever that is, um, imprison them and keep them yeah. until the revolution is over and done with. Um, but what if you're, what if you're like, you know, in the field and there's only four or five of you and you're cut off from your own line, you know? Those are the kinds of of hypotheticals I often get presented with. Yeah, I mean, sure. But I mean, those. But those are like so rare. First of all, and it's like, you know, there's an exception. It's like an exception that proves the rule. But Mm -hmm. yeah, you're you're right that uh, that imprisoning people is generally, uh, of course, preferable to murdering them. (laughs) You know, if 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 you have the choice not to kill somebody, then obviously you should take that choice every single time. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't know why that's not considered more common sense. And I guess it's got, it's got to do with the ways in which we glorify retribution. And, Mm. um, and I think again, that like, you want to talk about human nature for a bit. Um, I don't think that we have like an instinctive, I don't think it's like an instinctive aspect of human nature that we enjoy uh, retribution. I think that's something that is, socialized into us by society. Mm. Um, And I think that we can definitely, because I think I've grown out of it a lot because I used to be very pro-death penalty, Mm. you know, in my life. And I've grown out of it. And I don't, I no longer have any 
I used to feel happy when I found out that like a killer got the death sentence. I remember that feeling yeah. that way when I was like a teenager. I was like a Christo fascist <laughs> teenager for a little while. And if I heard that like some murderer got the death penalty, it would like make me happy and I would be like celebrating it. But I have absolutely no joy anymore when I hear that somebody has been killed for any reason. You know, yeah. it's just sad to me. Um, so I do think that that's something that can be social. I, and I think that because it's happened to me, like I think it can be socialized into and socialized out of people. Mm. Um, that's my personal, um, I mean, I, you know, and I think it probably is a fact. <laughs> well, Yokai Bankler, that guy I was talking about, like at the beginning of the stream, he's done a lot of comparative uh, studies about how he's trying to, he's basically doing a lot of comparative studies about um, the nature of, altruism versus greed you know and are humans altruistic or are they greedy and he's analyzed everything from sociology to psychology to anthropology to business science um and all of these sciences are moving in towards this uh kind of mutual aid model that goes back to kind of the stuff that kropotkin was talking about in the 19th century but more so uh what he's, he's finding out is that humans behave the, the the biggest determiner to how people behave is going to be the way a system is designed so if the system is designed so that people benefit by being greedy, then they are more likely to be greedy. And if the system is designed so that people benefit by being altruistic, they're more likely to be altruistic. And yeah. that, more than anything else, determines our nature. So I do think that you know we can change our nature and we can um, change our society and design better systems to create a more altruistic. Uh, yeah, that was uh, you know, we kind of, of although it failed miserably. That was the idea behind the Cultural Revolution in China was to to create a new. Um, attitude and yeah. new ideals and new philosophies to to better serve a, a socialist society but the way it was executed was uh, uh not really that yeah good. yeah <laughs> and, that, and that's why i say the design is so important you can yeah. have all of the right principles and values and ethics and you know the the perfect uh perception of like how you want the world to be but if you design the system shitty it all falls apart you know, and I think that's what happened in the Spanish Civil War, and that's what happened with Magno, and you know, that's what that's what could happen to any of our projects. You know, like yeah. even like you know, you take a look at BLM right now. Like I think that the that you got millions of people in the streets, and they all want to end police brutality. They want to, uh, you know, most of them want to end white supremacism. They want to build a world with racial equality and dismantle whiteness. You know, you got millions of people who want these things, but I don't see a system of organization right, right now that will lead to those goals being accomplished yet. I see people yeah. working on trying to build those systems, but they haven't been fully erected yet to the point where I, I, I don't currently think that the conditions have been met for a successful revolution, which is obvious because we don't see a revolution. But, you know, like, mm -hmm. like, like we need to have way more organization, way more structures, way more mutual aid, dual power structures, everything. Um, yeah. And until we have that well-designed system – it doesn't matter what your intentions are and it doesn't matter what your ideals are. You know, that's, that's something I think Marx was completely right about that. Like you have to have systems that are designed to match the material conditions. Yeah. So. I mean, Marx was, was a materialist and, and he, one of his big criticisms of Hegel was the idealism, the idea, because Hegel believed that, you know, you have uh, that ideas form, society that you know once you have a good idea and, and it's generally accepted then that's how society will be and that uh, you know ideas form through 
uh, rational debate uh, and that kind of thing. Whereas Marx obviously turned it on its head and said, no, it's it's the material conditions that form the ideas. That yeah. ideas grow from the current system that we live under. The, all the, the cultures and the philosophies and what we believe to be possible, what we believe to be common sense and what we and all these things, it all stems from the economic mode of production. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. you know, the current economic system decides and dictates and forms the ideas that people have. And it's not like no one is an, a free thinker. No one is like a completely uh, isolated, uh, rational person with no like influences from the outside world and and just comes up with good ideas just out of vacuum of space right like everything comes from the society that we live in and the ideas that we've been indoctrinated to believe in everything stems from there and even if we decide that you know those ideals are bad everything still comes from there yeah but also i think it's important to remember that he was not a deterministic and he was not uh he was not an empiricist or or a positivist he did believe that like ideas could shape our material world as well and that you know the form was just as important as content and there was kind of like this feedback loop but like yeah the way that we organize information in our heads and the conclusions we draw can definitely go back and feedback in and and, and change the material world as well mm-hmm. so and that's what gives me hope as an anarchist actually i think that's that that sort of definitely influences and flavors my my anarchism because if i were a if i were a um deterministic, you know, positivist, uh, absolute materialist, um, I probably just wouldn't do shit. <laughs> I wouldn't try anything, you know, cause like I would just assume that things are going to happen the way they're going to happen. I would become a fatalist and, and just kind of give up. I mean, um, you know, and I think that, I think Marx, um, Marx sets the stage, I think. And then anarchism gives me kind of the inspiration and the vision for action. I think that's really important, you know, that we have a vision for the world that we want to live in and mm-hmm. the systems that we want to build, you know. Um, I, You know, because, like, yes, the systems must match the material conditions, but we have to design them to have the effects that we want to bring about in the world, you know. And I feel like Marx doesn't give us as many of those tools as anarchism does because anarchism gives some very specific, practical, concrete uh, kind of like guidelines on how you build a system that matches certain material conditions, at least, um, at least that, that match the material conditions of the USA, you know, uh, they give us levers that we can pull, uh, so that we can bring our ideas into the reality, you know, into the material world. Uh, I don't know if, I don't know if anything I just said made sense, but it, it did to me as I was saying it. So, yeah. No, because like, for instance, like give me to give you a specific example of what I'm trying to say is like the idea of a dual power structure, Mm -hmm. I think is 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 something that like that is the kind of thing. It's like a very concrete idea that Marx himself didn't Marx didn't in my I mean, maybe, you know, I haven't read everything from Marx or whatever. But from what I understand, Marx wasn't so much of a didn't have a lot of prescriptions for how to actually bring about revolution and how to design the revolution. Um, Yeah. So, but like, I think that like, that's where people like Lenin or Mao or, mm-hmm. um, you know, Kropotkin or Rocker come in and they kind of give you these, these roadmaps. Um, but yeah, I think like a, for instance, a dual power structure is a great, uh, concept that matches the material conditions of the USA very well. 
because we have a lot of needs that are not being met by the state and that are not will never be met by corporations. And if we could, like, as a community, collectively build in, uh, uh, systems that meet those needs, we kind of make the state and we make capitalism irrelevant, you know, in some mm. way. Uh, like, if we have a food bank or if we have a a free clinic or anything like that, that where we serve a function without going through the state, without going through capitalist uh, apparatus, how can the state crush that? Like that's very resilient to the United States of American state, you know, and and I don't know, like, but you see what I mean? So like you have a system that is very well tailored to the material conditions of the USA. That's something I find valuable about anarchism. Yeah. I mean, Lenin, Lenin also, uh, I'm going to look it up, actually. Hang on. Uh, uh, the, here, the 21 conditions. Um, let's see. Where is it? I've never heard of the Patriotism. I found the Wikipedia article. <laughs> yeah. One of these is like um uh it's like a basically a dual power structure thing. Yeah, it I'll seems like it. a platform. Yeah. It's like it a platform is. is yeah. Um I don't know which one it is. But one of these points is uh <laughs> The 21 points of the Comintern is is essentially that the Communist Party has to build up uh, a parallel government uh, ready to step in whenever the the capitalist government fails, right? Mm -hmm. To essentially have a government ready to replace the old one, right? So Mm -hmm. you have all these systems built up and already in place, ready to take over the duties of the state. Um, And, uh, yeah, this was... um, Let's see, 1920. So it was kind of like Orthodox Leninism, I guess. Uh, kind of pre pre Stalin era, NEP. I don't know, slightly more, slightly more libertarian, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's fairly similar to to anarchism and dual power structures. I would say it's uh, just as a method to to build a revolution. I mean, Marx was um, Marx was a theorist and a philosopher much more so than he was a politician or a revolutionary so yeah. his concrete ideals for how are we going to do this uh how is the society going to look like like detailed and like exactly he didn't really talk about um, yeah but i see i think that's something i think who was it richard wolf that said this but like no it wasn't richard wolf it was the guy that i can't remember but yeah um somebody smart i don't know some guy uh, he said um but the, the idea that we have to have i think vision is very important though because people don't buy into ideas if they can't if they can't wrap their head around the vision of what society's going to look like afterwards and i think people actually get scared i think people get terrified if they don't have some kind of uh vision for what the society we're moving towards is going to look like and that's why or if they have the wrong vision you know which is why so many workers in the united states are just like completely allergic to the idea of communism or socialism or anarchism is because they've been brainwashed into believing that it's going to be an authoritarian 
hellscape uh, where you're going to have no freedom. You know, so we have to, like, be able to show people what we want the world we want to build, what it's going to look like, mm-hmm. I think. I think that's vital. Like, how are you going to get working class people or anybody to, to buy into our ideas if we can't tell them what the world we want to live in looks like? You know, I, I think that's vital. Um, it's one thing that I will say, like, of all of my projects that I've done myself, the one that I think has been most effective at pulling people to the left has been my How Anarchism Works series. Which yeah. is just this little series where I just talk about what, and I say at the front like this: these are my ideas for like the society I would want to live in. But I might be wrong. You might have better ideas. But I just kind of like build this little like, literally out of Legos. I like show them what this society I want to look like, looks mm-hmm. like. And I've had a lot of people tell me that that is what pushed them over towards embracing anarchism and giving up capitalism. Yeah. Um. And I think that, uh, and by the way, it's not like I'm the first person to do this. The reason I did it was because I was inspired by other people's visualizations and concepts of what kind of society they want to look at. You know, like that inspired mm-hmm. me and my journey to the left. So I think this is something that is powerful and people like to think of things, uh, you know, like we build narratives. We want to have uh, concrete ideas of what things uh, are going to look like. And that was that's a big problem with Marx. And and by the way, you know, um, I think it's good that he didn't though give mm-hmm. us prescriptions for you know how to build the movements. You know, it's probably it probably would be a bad thing if he. Yeah, I mean, he probably wouldn't have. I mean, he he would have had a very strange idea because because his idea of socialism was because you know this is pre World War One, right? That we're living in. Like he, uh, the World War One changed. Uh, a lot uh, when it came to the socialist movement and it kind of kickstarted a lot of socialist movements. Uh, and it was kind of this this part, like this condition, which was perfect for a revolution to break out, which Marx mm-hmm. obviously he died long before World War One ever broke out. But his idea was that socialism would come to the most industrialized nations first. Yeah, the, yeah. the first socialist nation. He thought would England be would be England. first, right? Yeah. yeah, England and then France and then Germany. Uh, and then it would kind of trickle down to the third world, uh, th- trickle down socioeconomics. Um, yeah. <laughs> so if he if he had made like a concrete plan for how to do a revolution, he probably would have said that if you he, live in a non-industrialized nation, that sucks for you. You know. He got it like as wrong as possible in that sense because this is like all yeah. the communist revolutions of the 20th century were in these like agrarian, you know, super authoritarian uh you know colonies yeah. and stuff so um it's kind of funny how wrong he was in that respect but yeah it took people it took people like lenin and i and i give all credit where credit's due like lenin and ho chi minh and castro uh you know che Guevara, like those people did an amazing job of taking the ideas of socialism of marxism of communism and tailoring those ideas to the material conditions of the countries they were in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that like Ho Chi, like the one that I know the most about is Ho Chi Minh and Ho Chi Minh just did like Ho Chi Minh was able to make a form of communism that just really fits Vietnam's nation culture, like a glove. It just really works really well here. And it takes into consideration a lot of things that, well, and not only that, but even when he was in France in the 1910s and twenties, he had all the right ideas, but he couldn't get anybody to listen to him. But he was trying so hard to get French workers to realize that the plight of the Vietnamese colonial subject was one and the same with the plight of a French factory worker. 
Yeah. And he wrote so many articles in like French press begging French workers to give a shit about the colonial situation in Vietnam. And he articulated it so well. It's like the reason that your wages are dropping is because there are these factories in Vietnam where my people are getting paid dirt to mm. manufacture the stuff that you were manufacturing last year. That's the reason that you're, you're, you know, you have to care about these things that are happening in your colonial backyard. And he was begging and begging for French workers to care about that. And it just, the French people didn't, weren't interested, yeah. you know, that's why he ended up having to leave and go back home and, he was hoping that he could get the French workers to demand an end to imperialism. And they wouldn't listen. And that's – and now look at, you know, look what ended up happening to France ultimately. They, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, so, so – so, but, but I think Ho Chi Minh had this great vision for, or this ability to see the material conditions and come up with, like, solutions that match those material conditions. Unfortunately, in France, he couldn't get anyone to listen to him. But fortunately, in Vietnam, he was able to get people to – you know, yeah. uh, buy into those ideas and, and build a real revolution. So, um, I mean, but that's the whole trick of it. That's what we got to do as revolutionaries is yeah. match our revolution to the material conditions. I mean, something that was lacking both from, you know, the early anarchists like Proudhon and the early Marxists was kind of this analysis of agrarian society and of the peasantry because mm-hmm. kind of everyone, I mean, I, I and I, it's kind of understandable if you lived in, in England or France during the Industrial Revolutions, um, it's pretty easy to to be of the belief that you know everything is being industrialized so quickly. We're very soon just going to live in a completely industrialized society where everyone is going to be proletarian, right? Because everyone, all the peasants are moving from the countryside into the big cities. Like everyone's going to be living in cities soon, uh, and everyone is going to be proletarian soon. So the revolution and the revolutionary ideals, both of anarchism and of Marxism at the time, centered around the industrial proletariat. And the peasantry class was kind of neglected because the thinking was, well, the peasantry class is not going to be around for much longer. And the industrial revolution is going to spread from Europe to Russia and to Asia, to all these other countries in the third world, and probably eventually to Africa too. Not that anyone ever really talked about Africa. (laughs) Um, and but then with that industrialization, there would come the proletarianization of the peasantry class, and then would come socialism. And right, this right, idea right. that uh, that an, a, an agrarian society, barely industrial at all, like lacking proper roads and infrastructure, like Russia, Tsarist, feudalist, monarchist Russia, could ever become socialist, it just didn't square. Like it just didn't yeah. add up. Like how on earth could that ever work? And it was a challenge to make it work. And there was a conflict, a very deep-rooted conflict between the peasantry and the proletariat. I mean, the Howard yeah. Sickle is supposed to represent the unity of the peasantry and the proletariat. Um, but there wasn't really that much unity, <laughs> at least yeah, at the very beginning, yeah. um, because the, the peasant class and the proletariat had very different uh, class interests. Uh, I mean, in, in many ways, they were diametrically opposed to each other. The only thing they had in common uh was opposition to the Tsar and the feudal order but the, like the peasants wanted the right to own land the right to sell their own goods the right to to you know have markets and all these things uh and the proletariat wanted collective ownership um yeah which you know we saw obviously in the Soviet Union collective ownership of agriculture is not as easy as <laughs> as you might think in your ideal world that well if we just have you know, if we just collectivize everything, it's just going to work 
uh, and everyone's just gonna have to get used to it. And if mm. you're a peasant and you don't want your farm to be collectivized, that sucks for you. But you know, we have to mm. do it for the revolution. Right. Um, so yeah, it, it, the analysis of, of agricultural society and and the peasantry was something that was lacking, and it's something that we kind of first saw solved, I think, with Mao and with Ho Chi Minh. We're kind of the first to to really, really, really tackle the issue of the contradiction between the rural and the country, uh, the, the, the countryside and the urban, uh, and mm -hmm. the, the industrial proletariat and the agrarian peasantry. Yeah. Which, um, yeah. It helped a little bit that um, Vietnam was a nation of, like, villages, you know, yeah. there weren't there were urban areas, but they weren't that important. In fact, like the Vietnamese gave up Hanoi like two or three times early on um, before they were able to finally secure like the whole north. And, and, and you know, the whole the war was really fought like Hamlet to Hamlet, village to village mm. um, in the south. So, like, I think that helped a little bit. Like they didn't really have as much of an urban. And plus the plus the United States, what, what was left of the, what, what urban centers they did have got bombed to shit, <laughs> you know, by yeah. the USA. Um, so that, that, that kind of helped. And I think that helped them militarily too, because they were just like, like their whole strategy was focused on slipping in and out of these villages, slipping through the jungle, building the Ho Chi Minh Trail and everything, you know, like, yeah. um, I think that was kind of what, but then you have like the counter example of that or the, like the, the example, cause you also have to remember that like things can go horrifically wrong if you fuck up the analysis of material conditions. And mm -hmm. I think the greatest example of that is Pol Pot, you know, who yeah. um, right next door, he thought that the whole solution to all of this is just to not industrialize at all and have like this ag agricultural peasantry based communism where you get mm -hmm. rid of all forms of industrialization, all forms of intellectualism. And that was just a, a terrible idea. And it was in and it was implemented terribly. Uh, and it was, you know, a massive disaster human rights you know yeah uh conflagration and, and vietnam ended up having to go in and kick out <laughs> pol pot um yeah. so you know you can obviously have a, a horrible misapplication of of a read on on the material conditions and how to meet them that can lead to genocide you know so yeah it's not something to be taking lightly yeah, and and I mean, I guess that kind of goes back to the whole thing about you can have the right ideals, um, but the implementation is what kind of decides if it's going to work or not. And yeah. It's like it's not there's not it's not necessarily right. wrong to try to build an agrarian socialist society where yeah. the peasantry is the ruling class instead of the industrial proletariat, um, but the execution was. Uh, flawed to say the least awful. <laughs> yeah it was yeah. awful he had a lot of weird pol pot had a lot of weird ideas too but yeah. like in and of itself that whole idea of like an agricultural i mean i guess that's sort of what vietnam it's kind of like the same basic idea as vietnam in a way although vietnam did yeah. build industry but they had the the vietnamese industry that was built early on was like a lot more for lack of a better term primitive you know they were they mm -hmm. were building they were they they were able to make guns, for example, by eventually, but the guns that they manufactured were like way less reliable, and way more uh, you know prone to failure and that sort of thing than the ones that they like. That's the other thing is that Vietnam also benefited from having a Soviet Union as an ally. They got a shitload mm -hmm. of material from them. They got you know AK forty sevens and tanks and mines and ships and all kinds of stuff from the Soviet Union. Um, yeah. 
which is something that we don't have today. There's no, there's nobody that's going to help us in the USA, you know, with a revolution. And I'm, I'm presumably yeah. in Sweden as well. You know, like there's no entity that is going to help any kind of a communist socialist revolution. I don't think that Vietnam or China or North Korea or Cuba, I mean, maybe Cuba is like the most likely to help us. But I think the mm. most help we could expect to get from Cuba would be like a place to run away if we fail, you know, like. Well, but they would um, medical volunteers. Yeah, they would. Uh, yeah. I, well, yeah, but I guess it depends on the situation. Though. They, they wouldn't be allowed to in the USA yeah. unless we somehow took some territory. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, it's not like it's not like Vietnam. We're not going to get boxes of guns and we're not going to get uh, material and financial support from the Soviet Union. Um, yeah. So that's I mean, something that I mean you, you can't deny that that's an important aspect of why Vietnam was successful. If they didn't get that material support, yeah. they probably would have failed. I think you know that's what Vogel Zapp says in his book. 